Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by Care Of, a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long-term. I'll be back after our first story tonight to tell you a bit more about Care Of and how you as a listener can get 50% off your first order of personalized vitamins. While you're watching, sign up for my official podcast mailing to be entered to win monthly giveaways of great innovative items such as the Rack Magnetic Wristband and the Zonley Weighted Blanket, as well as the opportunity to work with us on the production of a custom story written just for you. Subscribers also get access to exclusive subscriber-only narrations and inside updates. To subscribe, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Otis. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash O-T-I-S. Thanks so much for signing up and for your support. It means a lot to me. Now, it's time to get started, so go ahead, lock your doors, double-check under your bed. You never know what might have crawled beneath it while I've had you distracted. <laughs> Stay tuned. Your weekly delivery of nightmares has arrived. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. 
Get comfortable. Settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 2. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about creepy carnivals, terrifying television, psychic shenanigans, and sinister spells. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors. Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of an author who goes by the moniker Umbrello. In it, a gentleman visiting a carnival with his young son gets more than he bargained for when his progeny steps foot in an arachnid-themed funhouse. Without further ado, I present to you Spiderland. Can we go on a roller coaster? Sure we can, Kent assured his son, whose eyes brimmed with hope and enthusiasm. Little Brian ran ahead toward the ride as his father walked quickly behind. It was one of those old rickety coasters that won't keep you from falling out unless you hold on for dear life. Kent was always too scared to ride them as a child, but as a father, it was his duty to be brave. Hold on there, kiddo, you gotta be at least this tall to ride, proclaimed the ticket taker, thumbing toward the height requirement standee. I am. I grew two inches this summer. Brian boasted, then stood next to the grinning cartoon bear to prove himself. Looks like you just made it, said the man with a grin, and gave a little wink to Kent. You two have fun. Hooray, shouted Brian. Come on, Dad. Brian grabbed the cuff of his father's coat and gleefully led him through the entrance to the ride. They climbed into a coaster car, and Kent taught Brian to hold on tight to the bar. He put his arm around his son, and they smiled at each other. Soon, the coaster began moving, creeping up into the sky. Kent felt the anticipation slowly billowing inside him, Brian giggling excitedly by his side. This is going to be so awesome, right, Dad? Ah, uh, yeah, sure, Kent replied, trying to seem convincing. He was having second thoughts, but it was a little too late for that. They were at the top now and were about to descend. Kent felt the terror of that brief moment before the coaster picks up speed. Then the fun began. 
Brian and his father howled and laughed as the coaster went up and down and all around. No loops, of course. Kent knew he made the right decision, and it was a great bonding experience for the two of them. In his mind, he patted himself on the back. But as the ride came to an end, Kent was hit by a wave of nausea, rushing to vomit just once into the trash can. The ticket-taker looked irritated as he put his arm out to stop Brian from exiting the ride. "'Who told you you could leave?' he snarled in a sinister voice. Brian looked shocked until the boorish gentleman smiled and said, "'Just kidding, little guy.' Kent ran over to protect his son from the inappropriately sarcastic man, but Brian was fine, so he let it go. "'You okay, Dad?' Brian asked in an adorably concerned fashion. Yeah, kiddo, I just got a little sick, that's all. Were you scared? Of course not, were you? Brian didn't want to answer right away. He just looked around like he didn't know he was being asked a question. So Kent tickled him until he cried, which left him with quite the appetite. Kent wasn't hungry after getting motion sickness, so he bought Brian some sweet carnival bread. Brian took a few bites and said he wasn't hungry anymore. Kent rolled his eyes, knowing this was a common occurrence for kids. Save it for later, okay? Kent requested. And Brian wrapped up the bread and stuffed it in his knapsack. I knew I was going to need this, he declared triumphantly. My son, the psychic, Kent joked, and they both chuckled. Brian was ready for another ride, so they walked around the carnival looking for one they hadn't tried yet. I'm going to go in there, Dad. Brian hollered, running toward a spooky-looking funhouse. It had a spider motif and an equally attractive name. Spiderland Funhouse. Kent stopped dead in his tracks. Oh, God. He muttered. Ever since he was a boy... Kent had a paralyzing fear of spiders. He hated all creepy crawlies, but the idea that spiders trap things in their webs and then slowly suck the life out of them was more than he could handle. He prayed he could get his son to change his mind. Brian, I don't think this is such a good idea. What? Why not? Brian had nearly an uh, inkling of why his father would object, a funhouse. It's just... What's wrong? interrupted the ticket-taker, who seemed just as surely as the previous one. Afraid of spiders? No way! Brian shouted defiantly. I'm not afraid of stupid bugs! The ticket-taker motioned to Kent. I was referring to your dad there. Kent was a little ticked off at the employees of this particular carnival, but he tried not to show it. He turned to Brian, who looked hopeful that his father would insist he wasn't afraid. Of course not, but it doesn't look very safe. It looks really dark inside. Nah, it's perfectly safe, assured the ticket-taker. A group of harmless-looking teenagers walked up, wanting to go inside. Dad, let me go in, please. The other kids are going in. Kent gave in to his son's desire, but asked the group of kids if they could make sure Brian didn't get hurt inside, to which they obliged. You're not coming in? Brian asked, 
a little confused. I'm probably too big, Kent replied. I'd just get in the way. He didn't want his son to see him squeal like a little girl if a fake spider were to pop out of nowhere. But won't you get bored waiting? It was just like Brian to be concerned about other people having fun. I'll be fine. But Brian couldn't let his father stand around doing nothing at such an exciting place. He looked over at a tent that sat next to the funhouse. A glowing red sign read, Fortune Teller. Look, Dad, you can get your fortune told, Brian shouted, pointing at the tent. Son, those things aren't real. It's just a scam. Brian looked as if he'd just found out there was no Santa Claus. Kent quickly backtracked. I mean, the real ones wouldn't be at a cheap carnival. They're too busy helping the police solve crimes. Kent was quite satisfied with his brilliant save. Brian saw through his father's ruse and cleverly played on his skepticism. Just try it, Dad. It's just for fun, right? Well, you do have a point. It's just for fun, so why not? Kent gave his son a hug and left him in the care of the harmless teens, the ticket-taker and the spider-themed funhouse. It wouldn't take very long to have his fortune told, since there was no one in line. He walked slowly towards the tent with a strange feeling in his stomach, attributing it to the earlier motion sickness. As he pulled back the curtain and entered the tent, he knew he had made some kind of fatal mistake. Uh, I'm sorry, I changed my mind, he said, turning to leave. Nonsense. What are you afraid of? Inquired a wispy voice from behind a round table. Kent had been accused of being afraid several times that night. Even though the accusations were valid, he wanted to prove them wrong. I know, I know, it's just for fun, so why be so apprehensive? Precisely. Now, sit down and I will tell you what you need to know. Kent reluctantly sat down at the table, which, to his surprise, was absent a crystal ball. Wondering, where is my crystal ball? The woman asked wryly. No, I... I read palms. She informed him, and took his right hand into hers. Tracing the lines on his palm with her pointer finger, the fortune teller began to divine Kent's destiny. Hmm. Very interesting, she mused. Of course, I'm an interesting guy. Kent smirked at his charming reply, but the fortune teller paid no attention, continuing in a stern voice. You should stop looking for what you've lost. Kent was a little confused. As far as he knew, he hadn't lost anything. Haven't lost anything? I assure you, you have. She looked directly into Kent's eyes, giving him a shiver. I don't remember losing anything, so how can I be looking for it? It was a perfectly logical question. I'm sorry, but that's all I can tell you. Your lines speak few words. Kent had more than enough of the fortune teller's suspicious ramblings. He handed her two tickets and bid her farewell. The teenagers were just exiting the funhouse, so Kent trotted over to retrieve his son. However, Brian wasn't with them. Is my son still inside? He asked them politely. Who? 
One of them inquired to Kent's surprise. My son, Kent replied firmly. You guys were going to stay with him inside the funhouse. I asked you to keep an eye on him. Um, we've never seen you before, dude. Are you fucking kidding me? Ken growled. You think this is funny? Is my son still inside or not? Where is he? The teens looked at each other in amazement of the stranger's sudden rudeness. Look, dude, we've never seen you before, and we don't know your son, so just leave us alone. Kent stood dumbfounded as the group strolled away, joking about how crazy he seemed. Before he could begin to wrap his brain around what had just happened, the ticket ticker called to him. Hey, he shouted. Everything okay? Kent ran up to him, assuming he would be more cooperative. My son, Brian, he went into the funhouse. Did he come out? He wasn't one of those kids, the man asked, motioning to the teenagers. No. Why would he be asking them where my son was if he was one of them? Kent asked angrily. Hey, calm down, sir. How old was he? What are you talking about? He was about this tall. You saw him go in. You asked if I was afraid of spiders. Kent was furious now. I have no idea what you're talking about, sir, but if your son went inside and didn't come out, just go in after him. Kent pushed past the ticket taker, who then grabbed his arm and jerked him back. That'll be four tickets, please. Kent threw his remaining tickets in the man's face, then bolted up the ramp. He stopped short, recoiling in fear once he noticed the entrance, was through the mouth of a giant tarantula, its eight hairy legs looming over him like a mother reaching for a child. Its red eyes looked hungry, and its white fangs looked real. Kent was overwhelmed with anxiety, but if Brian was in there, then he had no choice other than to go in after him. He glanced sheepishly at the ticket taker, who was facing the other way and shuffled inside. Kent could hardly see a thing inside the funhouse, since there was just enough light to accent the artificial webs lining the walls. His heart was beating so hard it hurt. The air was thin, and the temperature felt like it was slowly rising. Brian! he called out sporadically, his lone voice reverberating through the cold iron walls. Exploring further, Kent thought he saw something move, but it was just his warped reflection in the funhouse mirrors. He continued cautiously past the bouncy bridge, past the moving floors, past the rope net, until he came to a spinning corridor. Kent could see light coming from an exit at the other end, but the hypnotic effect of the lines painted on the cylinder corridor created a vertigo effect. He tried to turn back, yet he had no idea where it was anymore. Brian! He managed one last time and fell unconscious. The sun shone through Kent's eyelids as the chirping of birds coaxed him awake. He lay on the ground near a single tree, his body aching all over. The carnival was gone. All that remained was an empty field of dirt and scattered patches of dead grass. Brian! Kent whispered. Where was his son? He wanted to cry, but it was too soon. Brian could be safe nearby.
Someone must have noticed that he was alone and brought him to safety. There was a village in sight, so there could be a police station. Kent stood up and started towards the town. As he stumbled through the field, he tried to piece together why he passed out and how the carnival could have vanished overnight. The town was small, but spread out. Houses were a little run down, but charming, with their white trim and pastel paint jobs. Kent couldn't immediately see if there was a police station around, so he decided to check out the local eatery to ask where it was. As he walked through the entrance, a little bell rang, and all the patrons turned to see who was coming in. They didn't seem happy to see a tourist. Kent wasted no time. Can someone tell me where the police station is? No one answered. In fact, everyone put down their forks and knives, their glasses, their sandwiches. They all looked at Kent with dissatisfied eyes. Even the waitresses were staring daggers at him. I'm sorry, I just need the police, please. Kent said as politely as he could under the circumstances. The police, huh? A gruff old man grumbled. You have an accident? No, my son is missing. We were at the carnival last night, and... Kent wasn't sure how to finish his sentence, but as it turned out, he didn't need one. What carnival? A waitress chimed in. The one last weekend? Last weekend? No, no, the one last night. But just as he said those words, Kent realized that he didn't know how long he'd been unconscious. Sorry, son, but the only carnival around here took off three days ago. A gruff old man assured him. You on drugs or something? Asked a young, homely girl. You city people always on them drugs. Kent lost his patience. Just tell me where the police station is. I need to go there right now. No one spoke. They just picked up their forks and knives, their glasses, their sandwiches, and went on with their business. A waitress finally replied, In a police station here. What kind of place is this? Kent shouted. How can you have no police station? Don't get your britches in a bunch, mister, said the waitress. This here is a small town. We don't get many problems. If we do, we handle them ourselves. Of course you do, Kent rebutted. Can I use a phone then? A different old man chuckled lightly before replying. I ain't had no phone service in eight years, friend. Kent was stunned. He stared at the old man in disbelief, then at the waitress, then at a payphone on the wall at the back of the restaurant. Pushing the waitress aside, he marched the phone and picked up the receiver with determination. There was no dial tone. He hung it up and hung his head in despair. No police, no phone. How could he take Brian to a place like this? I told you so, the old man called to him. The storm knocked out the power lines eight years ago. Town don't got money to fix them. Nobody call, anyhow. Small town we got here? Some of the patrons nodded in agreement at the old man's sentiment. There was no concern for the outside world in this town. Perhaps there was no concern for a missing boy. 
Kent walked slowly back to the front door in defeat, placed his hand on the knob. He had to make sure there really was no police station, as well as no working phones. The Carneys weren't exactly trustworthy, and Kent was hesitant to believe what he was being told. He turned around to say one last thing before leaving. If anyone sees a little boy they don't recognize, please keep him here until I come back. No one paid much attention. As Kent turned to leave, he was accosted by a sickly bearded man tripping through the doorway. They took her, he cried. They took her. He fell to his knees, grabbing Kent's pant leg and looking up at him meekly. Get him the hell out of here. A voice shouted from behind the counter. We've had enough of this. The man trembled as he attempted to stand, relying on Kent's arm to pull himself up. Kent just stood there, wondering if he should shake the man off or let him continue. Soon their faces were right up close to each other. They took her. The man whispered, sending a chill through Kent's veins. Get off him, you nut job! A large man yelled, pulling the sickly bearded fellow off of Kent and throwing him against the door. Now get out of here! Hold on a second, Kent interjected. Let's hear him out. The large man scowled at Kent. He's crazy. There is no sense listening to him. Please help me, cried the sickly man, grabbing the front of Kent's jacket. They won't help me. No one from this town will help me. He began shaking Kent vigorously, forcing him to push the man away. He fell to the floor, sobbing. I don't know what's going on here, said Kent, but my son is missing, and this man seems to be missing someone too. Let him speak. They took her, the sickly man cried once more. Shut the hell up, the large man said calmly and sternly. Who took her? And who did they take? Kent asked. My daughter. They took my daughter. They took Charlotte, cried the sickly man. Who? Kent demanded. Who took her? The sickly man's eyes grew wide, then he closed them tight. The patrons all paused for a moment and continued their business. Kent waited for the man's response, but it never came. You're wasting your time, buddy, the large man said. He doesn't know what he's saying. Kent knelt down and put his hand on the sickly man's shoulder. Do you know where they took her? Again, the man's eyes grew wide and wider still. The large man's face became cross and the tension became thick. The sickly bearded man spoke softly and with little strength past where the river bends. Kent stopped breathing for a moment when he heard those words. The sickly man spoke again, but with more volume and vigor. Past where the silo stands. Some of the patrons began to grumble and mutter inaudible things. Kent was completely entranced by the terror swirling in the sickly man's eyes. Past where they paint the houses. What? I don't understand. Kent whispered. 
The sickly man looked directly into Kent's eyes, his face trembling. Past where they paint the houses. Past where they paint the houses. Kent suddenly agreed with the locals that this man must be insane and backed away a few feet, but the man continued to stare into Kent's eyes, repeating himself louder and louder. Past where they paint the houses. Past where they paint the houses. Past where they paint the houses! Kent was petrified by the sickly man's mantra. He looked around, hoping someone was going to do something, but they didn't need to. The sickly man began to choke and gasp for air. In moments, he was on the floor, motionless. No one batted an eye. Finally, sighed the large man. Finally, Kent shouted angrily. That's what you say when this here man seems to have had a heart attack? He was the local nut, and now he's cracked. Let it go. You have a son to find, don't you? Kent knelt down again to check if the sickly man was breathing. His heart was beating, so Kent propped him up into an empty booth. This man needs medical attention. He's fine. The large man insisted, and he and everyone else ignored Kent for the duration of his stay at their fine eatery. Storming out the front door, Kent resolved that the large man was right. He had a son to find. Kent wandered through town, up and down hilly dirt roads, looking for the police station. He kept recalling the waitress's words. Ain't no police station here. Was that really true? Occasionally, he'd find a remote cottage and ask the residents if they'd seen Brian, but none were any help and all without phones. Discouraged by his futile search, Kent knelt at the river's edge to rinse his face. That's when he noticed something significant. The river took a sharp turn near the horizon. Past where the river bends, Kent whispered. Was the sickly man insane? Or was he on to something? Kent decided that without hope he had nothing. The bend in the river gave him hope, so he followed it. As it got closer, he looked out at the forest and up to the mountains. A few houses were scattered here and there, but mostly it seemed that wherever he was headed would be quite a hike. He reached the river bend and sat down to mentally prepare himself for the journey, not knowing how far it would take him or where it would lead. Kent took a picture of his wife and son from his wallet and held it tightly in his thumb and forefinger. He said softly as he touched her face, then Brian's, his only family. He wondered what Carol would think of him now. As he walked up the dirt road, Kent's face was worn by sun rays coming through the trees. His ears serenaded by birds, insects, and the movement of the river. It was almost peaceful, despite the worries swarming in his mind. Would Brian be down this path? Had he been taken or just ran off? If so, why? He kept thinking that he may be walking away from Brian rather than towards. But he just couldn't turn around. The sickly man's words wouldn't let him. The dirt road twisted and turned until Kent wasn't sure which direction he was headed. A house here and there provided no respite 
as there seemed to be no one home. It was becoming exhausted due to the constant slight incline of the road, so he stopped to rest. He was just high up enough to see the village over the trees. It made him feel alone. It was then that he noticed something hanging from a branch that looked like a knapsack. Kent walked toward the dangling bag, then jogged, then ran. He stopped just short of it, recognizing it was indeed Brian's. Yet somehow it seemed old and worn. He grabbed the bag and looked inside. It was empty. Various questions entered Kent's mind, but he dismissed them, knowing he wouldn't have any answers until he found his son. There was no doubt any more that he had been down the same road and that Kent was going in the right direction. That's when he noticed something else in the distance. A silo. Past where the silo stands. He spoke aloud with both confidence and fear, letting out some more slack on the straps. Kent swung Brian's knapsack onto his back and continued hiking up the road. The sun was just above the trees, getting ready to paint the sky. Night was coming. As Kent grew closer to the silo, a deep sense of foreboding began festering inside of him. Finding Brian was becoming a reality, and now Kent couldn't help imagining what might happen when he found him, finally. Would he have to tangle with Brian's kidnappers? Kent repeated the words, I know he's alive, over and over, until he no longer realized he was saying it. Kent stopped and looked up at the silo. Time had surely forgotten this majestic tower, with its cracked concrete, rusted ladder, and the last remnants of spoiled grain saving through an open hatch. Moss and vines had gradually worked their way up over the years, as if trying to hold the cylindrical structure, preventing it from moving. It almost looked like a living creature standing tall and wise, watching over the village. Kent took the picture from his wallet once again and held it to his heart, taking multiple deep breaths. Just a little further, he thought, and continued his journey. The road was now a path, overgrown in some areas, making progress a little difficult. Kent felt as though the forest was watching him. With malice, perhaps. He could tell that no one had walked this path in quite some time, which bothered him in a way he couldn't quite understand. As he traveled further, the trees gradually went from grand and full to sad and lifeless. The sunset was in full effect now, but Kent wasn't sure he wanted to rest again just yet. Changed his mind upon spotting a building among the branches. The shack was of modest size, with scattered patches of chipped blue paint, peeling off and hanging like a willow tree. It looked sturdy, and seemed as though someone was keeping up with repairs. Kent stepped lightly up the creaky porch steps and knocked on the door, simultaneously realizing that Brian could very well be inside and that his knock could be met with violence. He took a few steps back, and the door opened. A man in a dirty cap and hunting vest greeted him with a grim scowl. The 
two men glared at each other. Kent could tell by the man's eyes that he was disappointed to see a stranger. He was about to slam the door without a word when Kent finally spoke up. I'm looking for my son, he said in a voice tinged of aggravation in an attempt to show no fear. Have you seen my little boy? The man looked down and sighed as he stepped out onto the porch, closing the front door behind him. Go home, he said in a stoic tone. Not without my son, Kent replied, insinuating that the man standing before him might have taken Brian. Let it go. There's nothing you can do. Just forget about him and return to your life. Kent grabbed him by his vest and slammed him against the door. You're crazy if you think I'm afraid of you. He grunted into the man's face, then turned and threw him down the porch steps. He charged through the door and darted around the house, opening every cabinet and closet and flipping every table, looking for his son. It didn't take long to register. There was no one else there. I'm just trying to help you, the man insisted, appearing in the doorway. You want to help me? Then tell me where my son is. The man sighed once more, his demeanor becoming more sympathetic. I can't. Kent stepped outside and sat on the porch steps, holding his head in his hands. You know where he is, don't you? He played it, hoping for a less cryptic answer. Maybe this guy didn't know where Brian was, but he obviously knew something that he couldn't tell Kent directly, perhaps because he was afraid. We both know where he is, but you can't go there. If you do, you'll regret it. He sat down next to Kent and looked at him in the eyes. Your son isn't coming back, and you won't be able to rescue him. His words were painful to hear, but they slowly settled in Kent's mind, becoming a sort of comfortable truth. Still, he tried as hard as he could not to believe. Wait here, the man said, and walked back into the cabin, leaving Kent alone to ponder his plight. He recalled the scenario thus far, evoking vivid yet detached memories. The coaster, the fortune teller, the funhouse, the restaurant, the crazed man who lost his daughter. Past where they paint the houses. Kent said without thinking. I have to keep going. I have to find him. I'll bring him back. I'll save him. With that, he stood up tall and turned around, only to discover the man had returned holding a pistol. Kent's face turned red. You son of a bitch. I knew it, he shouted. I'm not going to shoot you, the man said, turning the gun around so the handle was facing Kent. You might need this. Kent reached out and accepted the gun. It felt cold and dangerous and unfamiliar. Know how to use it? the man asked, then gave Kent a short lesson when he didn't respond quickly enough. I don't think I can kill anyone, Kent said as he swung the pistol around in a cumbersome manner. Don't worry. When the time comes, 
You'll do what you have to do. Just remember there's only one bullet. So make it count. Kent tried to imagine himself firing a gun as he ran his thumb over the pistol hammer. He nodded in acknowledgement and turned his eyes to the setting sun. Can I stay here till morning? I'm sorry, the man replied with grave sincerity. You can't stay here. Kent wondered if he should press the issue or continue on through nightfall. The man must have had his reasons for not letting Kent stay, and he wasn't sure he wanted to know what those reasons were. The look on the man's face suggested that he probably wouldn't have a reply. Instead, he thanked the man for the gun and put it into Brian's knapsack. The two shook hands, and Kent's journey resumed. It was getting darker, and soon it would be too dark to see. Kent couldn't have known there would be no moon that night. Darkness wasn't a particular fear of Kent's, but it was making him anxious knowing he was in such a foreign surrounding. The sky's crimson backdrop was fading to black as Kent came upon a small clearing. He decided to sleep there, lest he got lost in the night. The insects chirped a soothing song as Kent drifted off to sleep, holding the picture from his wallet. Kent felt something. It was still pitch black, so he knew he couldn't see what it was. He lay on his side, sensing a presence beside him. A hand came over his body and clutched him tight. It was Carol. Where is our son? She whispered in a labored monotone. Where is Brian? I don't know. Kent replied in shame. There was a long pause as he focused on Carol's warmth, covering his whole body, her embrace filling him with both hope and sadness. Carol spoke again, even weaker this time. Please bring him home. The sound of the forest drifted away until there was nothing, as if Carol had banished them. Kent tried to speak, but the silence was so loud it bound his lips. Then, as if someone else was speaking through him, he whispered unknowingly, Promise me the sun will rise again. Kent awoke with a start, not having perceived he was dreaming. It was daylight, and reality was setting in once again. Brian was gone, but could be nearby. He could feel it. It wouldn't be much longer now that he, they would be reunited. He was prepared to do whatever he had to. He would bring Brian home, and no man would stop him. As Kent looked around to see which way to go, he noticed there were multiple paths, eight distinct paths going in all directions. He had no idea which one to take, nor which one he had taken to get there. He turned slowly in a circle, trying to decide what to do. Unable to make a decision, he fell to his knees in frustration. That's when he saw something at the entrance to the path in front of him. A trail of breadcrumbs. Brian must have kept the carnival bread with him, despite losing the knapsack.
Kant smiled at the thought of his son being brave and resourceful in the face of danger. Like father, like son, he said to the breadcrumb trail and started down the path. The trail was straight at first, but soon became full of twists and turns, unnecessarily so. Kant was getting frustrated at the illogical way it had been made and began to just push through the brush. Eventually, the path was impossible to navigate, but he felt compelled to head in one certain direction, which eventually led to the edge of the forest, where he found more scattered breadcrumbs. Mountains embraced the horizon, coddled by green fields. A winding path led down the hill from the forest to a valley where sat a seemingly deserted village. As the houses got closer, Kent saw how dilapidated they were. The windows were filthy, the roofs slightly concave. Some houses were missing boards in the outer walls. If there was anything that stood out to Kent, it was that none of the houses looked as though they had ever been painted. The town was laid out in a circular shape, with rows of houses revolving around one central building. There was no grass anywhere in town, dirt clouds drifting in slow motion. Time seemed to stand still. Kent could feel Brian nearby. It was the strongest gut feeling of his life. He clenched his fists and stepped into the village. As Kent explored the town, he looked around for signs of life. He could sense other people, but saw none. Glancing at a house, he spotted a face behind a cracked, cloudy window. It was a little girl. Hey! shouted Kent, running toward the house. The face calmly moved away from the window as he approached. Please! I need help! Kent vigorously jiggled the doorknob, but it was no use. He desperately banged on the door, then tried to break it down, but was too weak from hunger. Slowly collapsing on the doorstep, Kent begged the girl to acknowledge him. There only came silence in return. He rose to his feet and peered in the window. It was hard to see clearly through the filth, but there seemed to be something moving in the background. Hey! Kent shouted again, banging on the glass, which broke easier than expected. He tried to climb through the window, but he just couldn't manage. So he gave up and continued to stumble through the empty town. Brian had to be in one of those houses, but which one? He wondered how many of them had children inside. As Kent walked toward the center of the town, the dust clouds parted to reveal the central building. It was even more run down than the rest of the village. Boards were hanging by singular nails, windows were broken, the roof nearly caving in. Kent didn't notice at first, but the house had an octagonal shape. He walked around it, looking for a door, but there were only windows. A strange curiosity overcame him, and Kant was compelled to look through one of the broken panes. There were slivers of light coming through cracks in the ceiling, revealing broken furniture and dead rodents. In the center, a single beam illuminated a figure sitting on a small stool. It was a little boy. Brian! Kent shouted. The boy slowly raised his head, bringing his face into the light. 
His dad, Brian whispered sadly. It's going to be okay, son, I'm coming. Kent smashed the remaining glass with his fists and attempted to hoist himself up into the window. <laughs> Help me? Kent couldn't bear to hear Brian so frightened. It was driving him mad with concern. All this time, he wasn't even sure if he would find his son, but seeing him now was tearing his heart in every direction. I'm coming, Brian! I'm com- Kent froze at the sight of something coming in the light that shined on his son. A finger, perhaps. No, a paw. Another appeared. They were long and dark, covered in fur. Was there an animal threatening Brian? A third appeared. They waved hypnotically in the air in front of Brian's face. Then one gently caressed his cheek. A voice spoke, a hideous, slow voice, sharp and full of treble. We love him. Every muscle in Kent's body stiffened at once. Every hair stood up. He watched the waving appendages and listened to the horrible voices unable to react. He is dear to us. Yes, we love him. We cherish him. More slender, furry appendages danced into the light around Brian. They covered him, touched him. Soon the figures moved closer, allowing Kent to view their previously shrouded forms. Their bodies were furry as well, the size of a large dog or wolf, but segmented with too many legs to be a mammal. Kent then realized what they were. His darkest fear. Dad? Brian managed to whimper through his intense fright. Kent couldn't move or respond. He was paralyzed. His most horrible nightmare was standing before him, larger than he could ever imagined. Brian began to sob, but he had no tears left. As the creatures continued to surround Brian, their faces finally revealed themselves. They looked almost human, almost familiar, but with eyes all over their foreheads and two large wet fangs. Their hideous visages sent Kent into a complete state of shock. Again they spoke. Won't you join us? Yes. Join us for dinner. For dinner. Suddenly, multiple bodies started to move toward Kent. The nightmare was closing in. He snapped out of shock and fell from the window onto his back scrambling like a cat who didn't land on their feet. Once he got his footing, 
He ran away as fast as he could without looking back. Kent ran harder and faster than he ever had before. Despite being hungry and exhausted, he ran. He ran up the winding trail to the forest, through the impossible path, to the eight-way intersection. Kent didn't even think about which way to go. He just ran. He had no idea where he was going, but he couldn't stop. Why was he running? He couldn't remember. He just knew he had to run and couldn't stop until he knew he was safe. Nothing looked familiar. It was all a blur. Kent's legs moved on their own, bringing him further and farther from that awful, awful place. He had no idea how long he had been running, and when he finally spotted a building, it was the restaurant. Kent burst through the door, expecting to see a room full of people, but the place was empty. The door slowly shut behind him, leaving him alone and afraid. His knees buckled. His hands quivered. All the energy he used to run was gone, and he stumbled into a booth attempting to catch his wind. The grotesque faces stared him down in his mind. Had he really left Brian with those... those things? Kent sat up and looked around. The restaurant was dark and dusty, as though no one had been there for a long time. He took a picture of his wife and son from his wallet and held it tightly in his fingers. Guilt and pain enveloped him in an almost comforting way. He was finally able to cry. As he wept, Kent removed the knapsack from his back and hugged it like a teddy bear. But it wasn't soft like one, for there was something inside, the pistol. He recalled the man's words. You might need this. Kent inspected the gun in his hand and opened the chamber. On board, he whispered. Was this the man's intention? Again, he recalled the stranger's words. When the time comes, you'll do what you have to do. With tears streaming down, Kent closed the chamber and held the gun to the side of his head. Shutting his eyes tightly, clenching his teeth, he prepared to pull the trigger. He didn't know what fate lay in store for his son, but he couldn't bear the weight of his own cowardice. Before he could end his life, the phone rang. Ring! Kent sat there frozen still holding the gun to his head. but ding He recalled the words of the old man. Storm knocked out the power lines eight years ago. but ding Kent placed the gun on the table and slowly got up. but ding He walked toward the payphone in a trance. but ding Reaching out, he felt as if the phone was pulling him closer. but ding Kent reached for the payphone, his hand shaking as he picked up the receiver. There was no sound, so Kent spoke first, his voice trembling. They took him. They took our son. After a moment of silence came a woman's voice. Where's Brian? I... I couldn't save him. I couldn't save our son, cried Kent in shame. 
It seemed like forever before the woman spoke again, this time more somber. Please, bring him home. Kent couldn't bear to listen. Each word cut him deeper than any blade. I couldn't save him. They took him. They took Brian. Kent burst into tears more intensely than before. All his regrets seemed to be curling around him, squeezing him, suffocating him. It's all your fault, the woman said scornfully. You coward. Carol, Kent whimpered. You don't love our son. If you did, you wouldn't let him go so easily. Carol, please, I'm sorry. A click was heard, then it, then nothing. Kent dropped the receiver and fell to the floor. Couldn't save his son, and he knew he couldn't kill himself. He didn't deserve the warm, gentle embrace of death. Curling up into the fetal position, he gave up everything and completely shut down. Kent lay motionless as a creak came from the front door. Several bodies scuttled inside and surrounded him. His vision was blurry and his body unresponsive. He could feel things grabbing him all over, then dragging him across the floor and through the doors of the restaurant. They dragged him through the streets toward the edge of town. They dragged him past where the river bends. They dragged him past where the silo stands. They dragged him past where they paint the houses. They took him home. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Spider-Land by author Umbrello, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got another fear-inducing bit of fiction. This one from prolific creepypasta author Alice Thompson. In it, we discover the sordid events surrounding a mysterious room in a not-so-ordinary home and the impact they had on one Jason Grimes desperately attempting to warn others before it's too late. Before we begin, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about Care Of, the wellness brand that delivers personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Care Of is dedicated to making it easy to maintain your health goals 
with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long-term each and every month. Less than a month ago, we rang in New Year's, and with the dawn of a new decade, many of us, myself included, are thinking of ways to make ourselves the very best we can be, including by kicking bad habits and starting new amazing ones. What better way to ring in the new year with a resolution you'll actually keep to make your health and wellness a priority? I'd like nothing more than for each of you in my audience to make 2020 the year you commit to staying on top of your health and put yourself first, instead of that laundry list of resolutions that don't end up sticking with. Care of can make taking your vitamins and supporting your health goals attainable. With the help of their innovative quiz, they'll guide you to finding the vitamins and powders that will support your specific health goals this year, such as improving your fitness routine or managing stress. And Lord knows, a lot of us are stressed. You can trust that Care Of has your best interests at heart. They're focused on the science, research, and quality that goes into each of their products and recommendations and have dedicated themselves to making your life better. Care Of's got the secret to fantastic flavor, something, in my experience, that other vitamins and pick-me-up products are sorely lacking. The products have quality you can both see and taste in every dose. Their delicious protein powders, for example, are made of real ingredients you can recognize, like organic cocoa and pink Himalayan sea salt. And not only are their products good for you, they're good for the environment, too. With their individual eco-friendly packs made of compostable films, there's no need to worry about your monthly deliveries, filling up landfills, and contributing to waste. In fact, on Care-of's website, there's a ton of info on how to compost their packaging, so it's easy to figure out how you can do your part to help make a difference. The fact of the matter is, it can be really challenging to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking. And there's a reason so many people are vitamin deficient and struggling to make their supplements daily a habit. But Care-of makes it both easy and convenient to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest stick to your new routine. Got an on-the-go lifestyle? No worries. Care of thought of that. Their convenient daily packs are perfect for those of you on the move. Just throw one in your purse or gym bag and you're on your way. Me? Well, besides narrating these tales of terror, I'm a career woodworker. With so much time devoted to recording and handcrafting, it's tough to find the time to get on the supplement shop and harder yet to properly research the vitamins that are right for me. It's a good thing Care-of is here to help. How else do they make things simple? Well, I mentioned before that part of Care-of's personalized services includes you taking a quiz. Now, this isn't anything like the ones you had in school. No way. Care-of's short, innovative online quiz makes improving your health easy. Just answer a few short, fun questions about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle, and Care Of will recommend a specific list of vitamins and supplements catered to you to help you meet your health needs 
and achieve your personalized goals. They might ask you, how much sleep do you get? Or how often do you work out? Or if you follow any specialty diets? Things like that. If you're concerned about your hair, skin, or nail health, and let them know, they'll recommend supplements to tackle those specific issues and get you back on track to feeling great in no time. In as little as five minutes, you'll find out your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations from a company that's devoted themselves to making yours better. I had the opportunity to sign up and take the care of quiz recently myself, and the first thing I noticed was how much effort went into making it quick, painless, and pleasant to look at. I chose a handful of topics I was interested in and told them about how much experience I had with vitamins, and based on just a handful of questions, they recommended some really great supplements to me, some of which I'd never heard of. And the best part? They had research about the vitamins right on screen, ready to help me decide if they were right for me. And they never forced anything on me, even after the recommendations. I could decide to remove something if that's what I wanted, and the prices were so reasonable, too. The quiz results were spot on. In fact, they recommended some things I was already taking. Usually I'm a bit cautious about a company knowing too much about me, but Care-of asked just enough without coming on too strong, and it was obvious everything was designed to help me know myself better in just a few minutes. When my first packs arrived in the mail, they had my own name on them, and they're designed to make the experience of taking your vitamins joyful, not a chore. I don't know, there's something about getting my vitamins in a personalized paper pouch that seems a whole lot more pleasant than taking them out of a sterile plastic box every day. And with the individualized pouches, I avoid one of the worst things about pills, having to go through them every week and sort them. After taking the vitamins for just a couple of weeks, I could already feel a difference. I've got research at my fingertips to assure me that I've made a great choice. And Care-of has made all of that a whole lot easier. Thanks to them, I've got one less thing to worry about. But if I ever do need to adjust my packs or make a change, that's no problem either. With Care-of, what you receive is totally up to you. So don't bother anymore with confusing vitamin aisles, which make it tough to know what you need and where to start. Care-of makes it so much easier to get what you need and to take your vitamins every day. This year, whatever your resolutions are, I'd like to invite you to experience the care of difference today and make your health and wellness a top priority with the help of their monthly subscription vitamin service. Whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy levels, getting more sleep, or improving your health in general, Care Of can help you build a vitamin routine that's made just for you and your health goals. Today, as a listener of this program, you can get 50% off your first Care Of order. That's right, for 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code TOLD50. Once again, that's TakeCareOf.com and enter code TOLD50, spelled T-O-L-D-5-0.
and you'll get 50% off your first order of personalized vitamins. That promo code lets the kind folks at Care Of know that Otis and the team at Scary Stories Told in the Dark sent you. Thanks so much for listening and for giving our sponsors a try this month. Your support means a lot to us. Now that we've delivered you good health, courtesy of our friends at Care Of, allow me to give you a dose of something dastardly to balance things out with our next terrifying tome. Without further ado, from author Alice Thompson, I present to you The Grimes Home. The following was found in an envelope on a bus bound for Chicago. My name is Jason Grimes, and I'm writing this so that when the room is eventually open, people will perhaps understand the things they find within it. And so that I will not be thought of as a madman that part of me already fears I am. It all began with the reading of the will. My mother, my only living parent left, had passed away due to a heart attack in her New England home. Her body had been found by one of the women who came to clean every few days, and the news had not come as a shock to any of the family. She'd had two previous heart attacks, and with her smoking and drinking, she wasn't exactly in the best of health. It had been a surprise that she wanted me to have the old family home, though. I'd never exactly had much love for the place and had moved out the first chance I got. Honestly, I hadn't been expecting to get anything in the will. Given how long it had been since we'd even spoken, I was surprised she hadn't written me out the way she'd tried to write me out of the family history by removing any pictures of me from the house. I certainly didn't plan to keep that creepy, run-down old place, but at the same time, I knew that there was a chance it could fetch a bit of cash on the market if someone put a little uh, work into fixing it up. As I was currently between jobs, it might be a worthwhile use of my time. I got my brother and our cousin to come over and help with fixing it up, which they happily agreed to do. There actually wasn't as much work to do as I had first thought, as the house seemed to be in better repair than I remembered it being. I guessed that my mother, cheap as she was, had still finally been forced to actually get someone to come in and fix up some of the bigger problems the house had. There was still stuff that needed repair and a new coat of paint, but it only ended up taking about a week or so in the end. It was during this time that I first found it. Now, I don't have the best memories of the old place, given how long it had been since I had stayed there. But one of the first things I noticed while I was walking along the ground floor hallway was that there was a door that hadn't been there before. I stared at it for a few moments, more out of confusion than anything else, before trying to push it open, and it wouldn't budge an inch. I asked my brother if he knew what might be down there, and he shook his head, saying he'd not even noticed it before now. My cousin said that she'd noticed a big, old-fashioned-looking key in the keyhole of the door the last time she'd come around to visit, but she had no clue where it might be right now. 
I suggested, not really thinking much of it at the time, just figuring that I'd had to get someone to bust the door down at some point before I got the house sold. The room none of us wanted to go in was Emerson's. It was weird, seeing all this old toys and coloring books still there, as if our mother had been trying to bring her son back by clinging to his past. Emerson had always been our mother's favorite, the one who she lavished all of her attention on, and I saw that she had stuck his drawings up all over the place. Drawings of pirate ships and odd, comical-looking figures with strange designs. My brother told me that when he'd stayed for dinner, our mother would still set a place for Emerson, as if she expected him to just show up out of the blue. Missing for all these years, and she was still expecting him to come wandering through the door. That first night I spent alone in the house, I didn't sleep very well. Crazy as it sounds, I kept thinking that I heard noises in the house, people talking to each other. I must have checked each and every one of the rooms a good dozen times, only to find each and every one of them empty. I even checked to see if I'd left the TV on, but it was still unplugged. I'd go back to bed, and then after a little while, the noises would start up again. Sometimes I was sure that I could hear music as well. It was around four in the morning that a thought occurred to me, and I went to the locked door in the hallway, pressing my ear against it and listening closely. I was sure I heard what sounded like a muffled tune coming from within. The next day I went into town to buy some food, and after the events of last night, I also bought a hammer to knock the old door down. It was while chatting with the cashier that I learned something unsettling about the neighborhood that I had temporarily moved into. I had casually brought up where I was staying after he had commented on me being new around here and told him that I was planning to try and sell up. He'd let out a short burst of laughter before looking embarrassed about it, and when I asked him to explain, it said the following. No one with sense is going to buy that dump. No one with half a brain would buy any house within ten miles of that place, he said, not looking up from the groceries he was packing away. Why not? Seems like a nice enough neighborhood, I'd replied. Because all of them kids going missing, of course. He'd gone on to explain that for the past few years... There had been a sudden and disturbing rise in the number of children vanishing from their homes in the area. There had been search parties for them. The police and the FBI had gotten involved, but nothing had turned up. The kids had vanished from their homes with no signs of forced entry or struggle and no evidence left behind as to who might have been responsible. People were trying to move away as fast as possible, but there were few who would buy a house in the area once they heard about what was going on. No one wanted to move to a place where a child kidnapper, killer, was active. I have to admit, the story kind of creeped me out. Knowing that something so strange was going on near where I was staying made the odd goings-on of the previous night seem even more unsettling to me and so as soon as I got home, I decided to burst that door down. 
My neighbor, a fairly nice young woman named Charlie, who'd I gotten to know, was working on her home's front lawn when I got back and noticed the hammer in my hand as I headed toward the front door of my home. Not really wanting to be alone when I broke down the door, I gave her an abridged version of events, leaving out the odd noises of last night, and asked if she'd like to join me in finding out what was in the room. Mysterious locked door? Ooh, very Scooby-Doo, she said as I grinned. Sure, I'll be Fred. You be Daphne, I replied, happy to have someone with me. Uh, her presence, making the nervousness I had felt, while listening to the cashier's story, started to fade a little. Trust me, I'm more Velma than Daphne. Once inside the house, I packed away the various groceries, pouring drinks for myself and Charlie, before we went to the white door. It only took a few swings of the hammer to smash it open, the lock breaking beneath the assault and the door swinging open. Behind it was a staircase leading down into a darkened basement below. I stared in confusion at the stairs, not believing what I was seeing. Our house didn't have a basement, I was sure of that. And yet suddenly I seemed to recall seeing this before. I could remember playing with Emerson one day, daring each other, Emerson had always been afraid of pretty much everything, and I, in the way of older brothers everywhere, had taken far too much pleasure in tormenting him. I seemed to remember the two of us stood at the top of the staircase, me daring him to go down into the dark while calling him a chicken. Come on, Emerson, I'd been saying to him. You have to go inside. Charlie and I began to descend the old creaking steps toward the basement, the hammer still clutched tight in my hands. I didn't know what we would find, but I knew that I felt better being armed with something that could do some damage. As we reached the bottom of the stairs, Charlie began feeling around for a light switch, finding one after a few moments and flicking it on. The room was instantly illuminated, revealing what was within. Oh, my God! Look at all this cool stuff. Charlie cried out. The basement was full of puppets. There were dozens of them, all lined up on various shelves, all in very good repair, as if they were brand new. There were puppets of all shapes and sizes, some of them being very human-looking, while others were Muppet-like animal creatures, and others were more monstrous. There were props from what looked like the set of a kid's show, I guess. None of it had any dust on it, as if someone had been down to tidy up just moments before. I could guess what all of this was from, but what it was doing down there, I had no idea. What is all of this? Charlie asked as she picked up one of the puppets, a guy with a massive mustache and a monocle over one eye. She grinned, playing around with him, moving his limbs up and down. My brother used to work on a kid's show years ago. Pirate Place, I think it was called. Only ran for a couple of years before it got cancelled. I guess this stuff is all the old puppets and sets from the show. I said as we looked around the room. My eyes fell on a creepy-looking skeleton puppet with a really weird mouth and a top hat upon its head. Ugly-looking thing, I thought to myself at that moment. No way! 
Do you have any idea how much of this stuff might be worth? Collectors pay a fortune for things like this on eBay, Charlie said, setting the puppet down gently on one of the shelves. I glanced around at the rest of the contents of the room. Apart from the puppets and the set pieces, there was an old sewing machine set on a desk that was otherwise completely bare. There was no sign of anything that could have been the source of the tune that I'd heard before. Deciding that I must have imagined it, probably due to lack of sleep and being back in the old place, I did my best to forget about my fears and concentrate on the opportunity before me now. There was just one thing that troubled me as I looked around. On the desk, the sewing machine was set on, there were several odd red stains spattered over it. As I stared at them, I was sure, out of the corner of my eye, that the odd-looking skeleton puppet's head had twitched in my direction. The next few days went by without anything odd happening, really. I put the puppets up on eBay and had a few people come to view the house. The only thing that was strange was when one couple viewed the basement. All of the color drained out of the husband's face when his eyes fell on the skeleton puppet and he just turned, left the basement, and left the house. He went to the car, started it up, and sat there until his wife joined him after apologizing for his rudeness, and the two drove away. Later that night, I was sure I heard the old sewing machine in the basement. I wanted to go down and check, and yet at the same time, looking at that darkened doorway, I suddenly felt very frightened. And when there was a knock at the door, the sudden noise almost made me jump out of my skin, my head jerking to the side toward the source of the noise. Taking a moment to steady my nerves, I walked to the door, opening it cautiously, to see Charlie standing there. We need to talk, she said. She explained that she mentioned to a friend of hers about the find in the basement a few days ago. When she brought up the name Pirate Place, he'd gone quiet and asked her to describe the puppets. He looked afraid, she said, as if he'd just seen a ghost. He told her to move, to get away from me and from those damn things, as he referred to the puppets, growing increasingly hysterical as the conversation had gone on. He repeated over and over that it wasn't safe to be around them. They could see you through them. He rambled at length about physical avatars and the signal, none of which made any sense to her. Apparently, he used to work in television and had known my brother. He said that he'd sat down with Emerson in what he called the script room and then started raving about knowing where the stories came from. Charlie said that she had never seen him like this before, that he seemed to be almost psychotic, his eyes bugging out of his head, his face glistening with sweat. She'd been worried that he was about to have some kind of attack. Was your brother involved in anything weird? She asked me, and I honestly didn't know how to respond to that. Emerson had always been an odd kid, no doubt about that. But I couldn't imagine him ever provoking such a frightened reaction in anyone, let alone a grown man. 
I asked her if he'd said why the puppets were so awful, and she shrugged. All the stuff he was saying wasn't making much sense. He just said, it's not the puppets, it's what made them. And then he just got up and said he wouldn't be in my house anymore. Just ran out to his car and drove off. I decided that, as she shared her weirdness with me, maybe I could open up about some of the weirdness in my life right now. I explained about the odd noises, the music, and the sewing machine seeming to turn itself on. And against my better judgment, we decided to descend into that pitch-black basement once again. I'm not sure what I expected to find, but I was sure that something would be wrong. So, when we saw that nothing seemed to have changed or had been moved, I felt an odd sense of almost disappointment. I kind of wanted for there to be something strange down there, just to prove that I wasn't imagining all of this, to prove to myself that I wasn't going crazy. And that's when Charlie spotted the door. It was when she flicked off the light as we began to go up, casting one last look back into the darkness, and noticed that there was a light coming from somewhere. Not very bright, but nonetheless, a light source. Moving swiftly, we shoved aside one of the shelves of puppets and felt along the wall behind it to confirm what Charlie had believed to be the case. There was a door behind it. Told you this was all kinds of Scooby-Doo. Charlie said with a grin on her face, clearly enjoying herself. I smiled, which was something I definitely wouldn't have been able to do if she wasn't there. It was nice to have someone to share this insanity with. We felt along the wall trying to find some way to open the door, some handle or switch to make it open. From behind it, I was sure I could hear something. It sounded almost like music. Circus music, a cheerful, upbeat tune, but also off somehow, as if there was something not quite right about it. Out of the corner of my eye, I was sure that the puppet with the ridiculous mustache and monocle had moved. And I realized how ridiculous that sounds, but I was certain of it. It was just the tiniest moment, a twitch of its head toward the skeleton puppet, as if waiting for orders, I thought to myself, and then wondered why that had popped into my head. With a bit of work, we managed to strip away the wallpaper that was covering most of the door, revealing that it was a bright red in color, the paint chipped and flaking in places, with a small keyhole and no handle. I assumed that it just pushed inward once unlocked, or perhaps to the side as there was no place for a handle to have once been, either. It was then that I noticed that Charlie had stopped smiling. In fact, she was staring at the door with what looked like a mix of confusion and fear, taking a few steps back from it. When I asked her what was wrong, she just shook her head and made excuses to leave. I asked her if she was all right, and she told me she was just tired and promised to help me try and find the key to the door in the morning. It was getting late, so it was plausible enough, but I knew that something was wrong here. 
For the rest of the evening, I looked through Emerson's old things in his room, looking for some clue, perhaps, as to what it was that had inspired such fear in Charlie's friend. For the most part, it was old toys and childhood drawings, and nothing of much use. There were a few things that were odd, though. It was a picture that I guess Emerson had done when he was little. There was a crude drawing of a boy who sat in his bed that I think was meant to be Emerson himself. Around him stood several figures. One was just a stick figure with a hat upon its head. Another was a portly man with a cartoonish mustache and teeth. And there was a third that was very odd. There was just a scribble in the outline of a person, a black shadowy scribble. There was a circle drawn above the three figures, and the boy and lines were shown coming down from it, leading to the boy's head. For some reason, looking at those lines, the word tendrils came into my head. There was a picture of a red door. The words, where they take them, were scrawled in large letters beneath it. And the final picture was of the stick man and the man with the mustache leading several smaller figures toward a third. This one was a woman, a rather well-drawn one in comparison to the crude basic nature of the others, except for the face. The face was just two dots for eyes and a line for a mouth. The words, where they take them, were written here as well. There was a message on my answering machine from Charlie the next day. She said that she'd gone to stay with her girlfriend for a few days, just to clear her head and apologize for leaving so suddenly the previous night. Her voice sounded odd, kind of shaky, really, and she said not to bother with the door. She tried to sound calm and casual when she said it, but there was fear in her voice. She said it was probably best to forget about the whole thing and just cover up the basement, not even mention it to the potential buyers for the house. She said it would be a good idea to take the puppets off of eBay as well. I should have just done as she asked. Instead, spent the rest of the day ransacking the house, searching for the key to that door. I looked everywhere with little success until, almost on a whim, I decided to search Emerson's room more thoroughly. And there, hidden in one of his old pillowcases, was a key. I poured myself a drink to steady my nerves, sitting down to watch the TV. I remembered the old thing never picking up much when we were little, the channels always being full of static. It seemed to be working better now, at least. And the news came on, talking about another disappearance in the area. Girl of twelve this time vanished from her home in the middle of the night. I flipped through the channels looking for something a little less grim while I finished my drink. Getting up, I headed down the steps into the basement, striding toward the door, ready to open it up. The skeleton puppet was sitting at the sewing machine now. I knew I hadn't moved it, and neither had Charlie. The other puppets, their heads seemed to be turned towards it, as if they were waiting for it to do something, to say something. God, it was a hideous thing. 
That awful, misshapen mold looking so awful. God knows why the prop designer had made it look that way. At that moment, the words, to grind your skin, popped into my head. I put the key into the door, and sure enough, it unlocked it. The door pushing inward with ease, revealing the room that lay beyond it. It was illuminated by a single dirty bulb, making the contents of the room easy to see. Dear Lord, the smell. The only thing worse was the sight of what was littered around the room. Children's shoes and clothes, some spattered with old dry blood, were piled in a heap in one corner of the room. The floor was stained with large patches of red, one of which, as I stepped into it, I realized was still somewhat fresh, fresh and sticky like soda spilled on a movie theater floor. The room smelled of spoiling meat and burnt hair, and it took all I had to not throw up as I entered it, wondering how the smell hadn't traveled from this room to the basement. There was a pile of old video cassettes in one corner of the room, all labeled with things like Emerson's first bike ride and Emerson's first spelling bee. All old home movies, I guess. But mixed in with them were tapes labeled Candle Cove, Episode 4, and Season 3, Pilot Episode. I picked up a few and noticed that there were bloody fingerprints on several. There was a series of steps leading down further into the blackness at the rear of the room, and I felt oddly compelled to go down there. How far down did this go? How was this even here? beneath my family home without me ever knowing of it. And yet, and yet, I felt like I did know about it. Looking at those steps, I felt like I remembered being in this room before. I was a child, and it had been empty then. And there I stood with Emerson at the foot of these stairs. Emerson, you have to go inside. I had whispered to him, taking delight in how terrified he looked. And he had gone down into the dark, and... and... My head throbbed with pain. It actually physically hurt to try and remember, as if something was willing me not to. Had there been someone down there with us? I was sure I remembered there being someone in the room beside the two of us, the more I thought about it. Our mother? No, not our mother, but another woman. Why couldn't I remember her face? I began to take unsteady steps down the stairs. The more I walked, the closer I got to another door, another red door. The key fit the lock to this one as well, and it opened with the ease. There was music coming from within now, and the sound of waves crashing against the shore. I felt it pulling me towards it, calling to me like a siren song. I had to go inside, I thought to myself. I had to go inside. I wasn't alone in this room. I burned all the puppets later that night, not that I imagine it matters. They've been destroyed before, and it hasn't stopped them from coming back. They're just wood and paint and cloth, nothing but a conduit. They allow them to come through, allow them to 
walk through the door and come here. Oh, God, the door. I know where they go now. I know where they go now. Oh, Christ, oh, Jesus. Please help me. I know where they go. I saw it. They took me there. The way they took my brother when he was a child. They need us. I don't know why they need us, but they need us. That's what he said. Through that horrible, misshapen mouth, those eyes rolling in his sockets wildly. They needed my brother, and they needed me. My family is not safe. The signal needs us. The story needs us. The ship came to the cave. Emerson was laughing and crying at the same time as he spoke the words I knew were coming, as he told me what I had to do. It was waiting for me. I saw the... The following portion of the letter has been heavily crossed out, making it almost impossible to read. A word that may or may not be mannequin appears at one point in the letter, and the word skin is visible at several points in the following two paragraphs. What could be faker or taker can also be made out in the second paragraph and ship in the final sentence. The letter resumes. I ran. You may think me a coward for not helping them, not even trying to save them, but I know where the ship is taking them now. I know where the voyage leads, and I know who's waiting at the end. I would pray to God, but no, that will do no good. I know now. I know things that no one should ever know. I know what Emerson learned the day the signal found him. I know the things he learned in the dark places where the music comes from. Music played on instruments crafted of bone and organs wrapped in flesh. It's always there in my head, playing on an endless loop. The signal has found me like it found Emerson that day I made him go down those stairs. Like it found our mother. I know why she did what she did. I know what she knew. And I know where Emerson is. I saw him on the ship. Oh, my God, the ship. The laughing was the worst. I wish it would stop laughing. I sealed up the basement, but know that one day someone will go down there again. I write this so that when they discover the things I know, they will find down there. They will know neither I nor my mother were responsible. And perhaps so they will have the courage to do what I do not and destroy this terrible place, burn it to the ground. The only things that hold me back is the fear that perhaps this place is not merely the door to their cage, but the cage itself. If the house were to be destroyed, perhaps they would be able to spread. I wish to apologize to my family. I hope they'll forgive me for what I'm about to do. I hope they'll understand my brother, if this reaches you, please do not go into that house and don't sell it. Board it up and let it stand forgotten. A creepy old building for people to stare and wonder at. 
Maybe that'll hold them back at least. The sewing machine is going at all hours of the day now. I know that it's him sewing himself new additions to that terrible cape. She lets him keep the skin, you see. He gets to keep the skin. I am so sorry, Emerson. I don't hate you for the things you did. I wish I could help you or at least put you out of your misery. I know they won't let you rest. I know you cannot be free of them. I see them out of the corner of my eye sometimes. They're going to take me to the ship. I won't let them. I will die the way I choose. The sea will carry my body away, hopefully far from where they can ever find it. The slider was found lying beside a cassette tape. The tape proved to be nothing but static, although those who watched it reportedly felt a sense of unease and nausea when they tried to view it. The Grimes' home was searched and the belongings of over 23 children who had gone missing in the local area were discovered within. No trace of the children themselves were found within the house or near it, however. The basement and the secret room were both as the letter described them. However, no stairs leading down to a further sub-basement were found anywhere on the property. The puppets all also appeared to be completely undamaged, despite the claim that they had been burnt. The tapes mentioned in the letter were missing, however. Two families have since lived in the Grimes' home. Neither has stayed for more than a few months, reporting strange smells, odd noises around the house, and things going missing. One reported sensing something terrible in the basement, and her children spoke of horrible dreams about the ship taking them away and the bony man from the TV watching them at night. The house is now abandoned, having been purchased and then left empty by one Adrian Grimes in early 2011. The puppets and set pieces from Candle Cove, mistakenly named Pirate Place by Grimes in a letter, an early working title for the show that Emerson Grimes later abandoned, supposedly vanished shortly before Adrian Grimes made the purchase. The whereabouts of Jason Grimes remains unknown. I hope you enjoyed The Grimes Home by author Alice Thompson, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month, 
and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with each of us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Care Of, for their support of this show. Don't forget, as a listener of this program, you can get 50% off your first Care Of order. That's right, 50% off your first Care Of order. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code TOLD50. Once again, that's TakeCareOf.com and enter code TOLD50, spelled T-O-L-D-5-0, and you'll get 50% off your first order of personalized vitamins. That promo code lets the kind folks at CareOf Know that Otis and the team at Scary Stories Told in the Dark sent you. Thanks so much for listening and for giving our sponsors a try this month. Your support means a lot to us. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well. 
to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.